0: This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. I hope you're all well and staying safe. Last week, the Jackson Laboratory and Ellsworth Public Library presented a webinar for the local community entitled, From SARS to COVID-19, My Life with Pandemic Response, featuring Jackson Lab President and CEO, Edison Liu. Dr. Liu led the scientific response for Singapore during the SARS crisis in 2003. And spoke last week on the science of COVID-19, how to slow the spread of the virus, and what the scientific community is doing to address the public health crisis. And we do want to alert listeners that part of the discussion includes research on animals. Nadia Rosenthal, Ph.D., Jackson Lab, Scientific Director in Bar Harbor, moderated, and a question and answer session followed. There are a few references to slides, but they are explained well enough that it doesn't detract from the presentation on audio. If you'd like to view the video of the webinar, we'll post a link to that on WERU social media and along with the archives of today's program at WERU.org. Used with their permission, here is the presentation recorded March 31st.
1: I'm Nadia Rosenthal. I'm the scientific director at the Jackson Laboratory here in Bar Harbor, and I'd like to thank the Ellsworth Library for giving us this opportunity to speak with Dr. Edison Liu, the CEO and president of the Jackson Laboratory, about his experiences from SARS to COVID-19, my life with Pandemic Response. Welcome, Dr. Liu. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you, Nadia.
1: Um, Tell us a little bit about this virus, COVID-19. What is it? And where did it come from? Hmm.
2: Well, COVID-19 is a coronavirus. And I have a little slide for you, a picture of you, of the coronavirus itself. Um, It is a, a virus that actually has been around in humans for a long time. It causes a common cold. Um, But in 2003, there was a a remarkable event um, of uh, the SARS uh, virus that came about, and it's a swept um, Asia. Um, And when we sequenced it, we found that um, it was a coronavirus, to the surprise of everybody, because it normally is a benign type of virus, but what had happened was that it mutated in a specific way and jumped from a civet, which is a mammal, to humans, and from humans to humans, and um, the, subsequently there was a camel um, coronavirus called, and then that caused a, another outbreak in the Middle East called MERS. And finally, uh, unfortunately, we have COVID-19, which started it in a seafood market in Wuhan, China. Um, Now, uh, the origins of that is that it is likely from a bat um, because these coronaviruses are in many species. um, And they cause diseases in those species. But it's when they jump from one species to the next that it becomes very virulent because um, usually uh, individuals, humans, uh, if it can be passed on from human to human, uh, we don't have any um, antibodies or we're not Im- have no immunity. So you can see that the pictures of coronavirus, the the one on your left is actually a rendition, but one on your right is electron micrograph, and it is characteristic spikes that come out and that's one of the uh, physical features of the coronavirus.
1: How do you envision that it spread so fast? What what made it spread so fast compared to SARS, which I know you worked on when you were in Singapore? This seems to have a completely different trajectory. And I was wondering if you could just explain how your vision of this is.
2: Well, um, first of all, the. How we knew it was a coronavirus was by the new genomics stuff that we do at the Jackson Labs. Um, I, was the, uh, I was the executive director of the Genome Institute of Singapore, and we were mobilized immediately once we knew it was likely to be a viral uh, source. And the first thing we tried to do, um, and the two scientists who are here now at Jackson Laboratory, Yijin Ran and Chalin Wei, were amongst the first were the leaders of the team that did the first um, sequence of, of, the, uh, of the coronavirus, of the SARS virus. Once we, uh, you sequence it, you know the structure of that virus, and then using a, a computational means, you can then map it back to potentially where it was from, but also equally important, you are, you're able to analyze the components of the virus that we do have an understanding of how it functions in a a human host. It turns out that those spikes um, are really the major recognition, um, the the kind of address of that virus uh, against a human cell. And when those spikes actually touch a human cell, if there is a match, then that human cell will take up the virus through a variety of means. And that's how the infection takes place. Well, um, we know for a fact that the SARS virus had a fit between the spike and a protein on human cells called ACE2. The name is irrelevant, but it's just that it is a unique one. Um, and when it, we looked at the sequence, when scientists looked at the sequence, it was uh, uh, we can actually uh, in we can actually uh, infer structure. By looking at a sequence, we can say it's likely to fold this way. And when they did that, they were surprised to see that it was a very good match to the ACE2 protein, much better than SARS and certainly better than the bat viruses and what have you. This is very pertinent in the sense that um, it's really the only the human ACE2 that will bind to the um, COVID-19. The the mouse uh, ACE2 will not, uh, and it's likely that the bat ACE2 actually does as well.
1: So this is um, obviously a brand new virus for, at least for humans. And um, there have been obviously vaccines in the past for flu, and this is a related virus. So why is there no cure? Why don't we have a vaccine? At least um, in the making or ready for such an, a pandemic.
2: Well, first of all, uh, flu and coronavirus are, you know, are actually quite different, even though they may have the similar molecular mm-hmm. uh, principles. Okay, so just because you were immunized against the flu- influenza, you're, you clearly are not going to uh, have any protection against the coronavirus. Um, the the challenge of of any um, vaccine is that uh, you, in effect, you you need to know the, the 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 structure, and you also most likely need to have the virus at hand. In the old days, you you made the virus um, at what they call attenuated. You kind of killed the virus and used that as a as the uh, vaccine. But now, most of the time, it's actually produced the the antigens are, are fundamentally produced. Well, um, in order to get that done is technically not that hard. Um, it's engineering. A lot of groups know how to go about doing it. It's really the scale up and the testing that is really difficult. You're not talking about thousands of units. You're talking about tens of tens of millions of units, and to bring that up to that level is quite significant. But there's another very important part of this, too, is that not all viruses work. And in fact, rarely, but once in a while, a, vi- a vaccine, what I mean, a vaccine won't work, but once in a while, a vaccine will actually make the infection worse. We know that. And that's why it has to be tested in a, um, a clinical trial first um, in order to avoid that um, and that, that terrible situation.
1: So it sounds like the best, uh, best way forward is just not get this virus in the first place. So how do I know? How do I catch it? And how do I know if I've got it? And how do I know if somebody else has it?
2: Well, that's one of the challenges of the COVID-19 is that the symptoms are very similar to the common flu. In fact, there's a spectrum. Of symptoms from mild to very severe. Uh, And the mild one sometimes looks just like a common uh, cold of which other coronaviruses can also cause. Um, Let me give you at least from the very big picture to the to the symptomology uh, in and of itself. Um, You know, let's take a look at the behavior of the virus, okay. Um, I told you that that COVID nineteen is very transmissible. People can get infected. In fact, it's more um, uh, transmissible than uh, than the flu itself. Um, and that, and the flu, as you know, is um, uh, can spread relatively easy. On top of that, it's about ten times more virulent than influenza. The current strain. Um, now you have it's more transmissible, and it's uh, more virulent, and you've got a very bad combination uh, altogether. And this is why the the world is very concerned about this uh, pandemic, especially since, as I mentioned, nobody has immunity to it. It's totally new. Um, um, the symptoms are like colds and you, uh, runny nose, sore throat, and then Characteristically, there's a cough and fever. Um, and that's what the pneumonia part of it was what brought uh, the, the, uh, the epidemic to notice of, of physicians. Um, but as we gain better understanding of the, of the virus, and in the last count, uh, there's already over 800,000 individuals who are infected worldwide we began to see, uh, like I say, a large spectrum of the symptoms, from very mild to to death. Um, things like um, change in smell, um, uh, you know, those those uh, issues uh, do come up periodically. But it's not one symptom; it's a constellation of symptoms.
1: So we've heard a lot about social distancing. Um, By the way, if you can see, we're practicing it tonight. I think we're more than six feet apart. Um, And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of
2: social distancing. To to control and to overcome any epidemic or pandemic, um, uh, there are only really three approaches. Um, I'll start with the, the most technological, and that is... Um, an antiviral, in other words, a drug that will stop the proliferation of the virus in you, stop it cold. The second is, of course, vaccine, and that is to prevent you from getting the virus. And then the third, which has been practiced uh, as long as their civilization, is what we now call social distancing, and in other times they were called quarantining uh, individuals. So uh, social distancing is, it can be viewed in two, about two levels. One community population and the other is on a personal level. On a personal level, mainly it's to protect you. And that means that we have a respectful distance. Um, you don't get into enclosed areas because it's a respiratory virus, and we can talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, in more than a certain number of people, and you want to keep as far apart as, as possible. This is why you have these isolation procedures, especially, as you may have heard tonight, um, Governor Mills has basically declared a health state of emergency in Maine, fundamentally shutting down the traffic of, of, um, uh, of citizens within the state to prevent large numbers of people, um, you know, aggregating uh, that's there. Now, the second level to that is uh, on a population basis, which is to say, we're not going to let lots of people uh, congregate. um, And that is clearly to prevent the spread of the virus. The virus is very transmissible. Uh, And on top of that, we now know that um, a number of individuals will be infected but have no symptoms and can still infect somebody else, okay? So the, the characteristics of this virus are um, really uh, a very stealthy one, and it's it's the one that is uh, causing us a major problem right now.
1: And um, these, these symptoms that people have, the respiratory symptoms that people have, that's really the... The, the core of the problem with social uh, proximity is that you might be um, um, somehow susceptible to somebody else's cough or some kind of uh, waterborne um, virus uh, that would...
2: So, so that's a very good point, um, um, Nadia. Uh, the, uh, the, this coronavirus is primarily spread by uh, aer- aerosols from your lung. Now... It's in other surfaces as well, but as far as we know right now, the transmission um, is uh, is through aerosols, and you get these aerosols by uh, talking in close quarters, by coughing, and by sneezing. Now, the reason why we talk about the six feet is it wasn't just pulled out of the sky. Uh, in fact. There have been engineers who've studied how far these aerosols actually project using some very interesting technologies. And that's about six feet is to the extent. Um, now, uh, the other aspect of this is that these droplets uh, actually fall down on surfaces. And especially, this is why you're asked not to cough in your hands because the hands will actually shake with somebody or when you hug them and you give them a kiss, that is the easiest way to also transfer uh, as well. Now, once it lands on the surface, um, it, can, it, it can actually infect others while on a surface. We know for a fact that on surfaces, if you just simply ask, can you harvest traces of the virus, you can harvest it up to about three days on a surface if it's not cleaned. Cleaning with 70% alcohol is very efficient in eliminating that virus. Now, the aerosols that you get on coughing, uh, in very controlled conditions, in a fundamentally a box, uh, it will linger in the air for about three three hours. Um, Now, uh, if there are winds and what have you, of course it changes, but in the experimental situation, It's about three hours lingering in the air and about three days on surfaces. That's why we're spending so much effort keeping people away. That's why we're asking people not to aggregate in uh, crowds. That's why we're cleaning surfaces as much as we possibly can.
0: You're listening to a talk called From SARS to COVID-19, My Life with Pandemic Response, featuring Jackson Lab President and CEO, Dr. Edison Liu. The moderator is Nadia Rosenthal, Ph.D., Jackson Lab Scientific Director in Bar Harbor. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM.
1: What do you see as a major advantage of testing for this virus? We've heard a lot about tests and the shortages of tests and the uh, relevance of tests. Can you talk a little bit about the role of testing in this pandemic?
2: Yeah, um, the before I do that, um, I want to actually finish off a, um, uh, with an example of why social distancing is really important, and I have a slide for you for, the, uh, for that. Now, this isn't the first pandemic we've had. We've had a number, many in the past, but the most recent one that had a worldwide impact that killed probably 50 to 70 million human beings Killed six hundred and seventy-five thousand Americans was the 1918 flu epidemic called the Spanish flu. Okay, Um, and when it came back, when it came from Europe to the shores of the U.S., um, the different cities responded differently. And by the way, this is actually a study, historical study that was done um, looking at the incidence of cases in Philadelphia, in the solid line, and uh, in St. Louis, in the dotted line. You can see, and uh, in the uh, horizontal line is really over time, right? You see in Philadelphia was that huge peak, and then it came back down. And how in St. Louis, it was this low plateau they threw out. Well, what was the difference? This happened within a week and a half apart from each other, the the initiation of the epidemics in the two cities. Philadelphia decided to celebrate uh, by a big parade. Um, They just didn't want to stop anything. They didn't close the city down at all. St. Louis closed the city down. And this is actually uh, evidence, historical evidence, how Social distancing as a policy does work. So the next slide um, will tell you also. This is actually the number of new cases that we see in um, uh, in the United States. Okay. Now um, we we assess how fast a uh, a uh, an epidemic is actually raging through a population by looking over time how many new cases actually occur. And you can see this one was going up in a really fast clip, which if you fit it into a mathematical model, it would be exponential growth, right? Now, the red, the red arrow actually was when President Trump on March 13th declared a state of a health emergency And that's when many states began to do their social distancing policies. And with the green arrow is when you see that a number of those cities and states closing down, and you see that instead of an exponential growth, that growth flattens out. And that is what we would call flattening of the curve. And it's telling us that the social distancing is actually working in the United States, as imperfect as it is.
1: That's fantastic. It's such a relief to know that something is working. Um, let's get back to the tests, though. I'd love to hear more about how you feel tests are um, playing a role in, the, um, in, in this flattening of the curve.
2: Well, I can tell you that uh, when the SARS crisis hit, we knew that the most important thing we could do, other than the medical isolation and so forth, was to get a uh, test. So it was sequenced, a PCR test was done, it was distributed throughout the country. The most important issue here was just like the COVID 19 uh, pandemic, epidemic, is that it started in the winter at the same time as the, the seasonal flu. And remember, I told you that the symptoms are almost identical between the two. So you have people presenting to their doctors. Um, with the flu, and yet they have this completely new, much more virulent virus that is lurking in their their bodies. So a very important part of this is to identify which amongst those people with flu-like symptoms actually had COVID-19 so that we can separate them uh, and uh, and not have them infect uh, other people, especially the healthcare workers, because there's a tendency to go to the hospital, the emergency room. And the first people they will infect, not only are the people in the waiting room, but also the first responders, the nurses and the doctors. This is, in fact, the reason why we have such a, um, a sense of emergency. As the numbers rise and as people get very sick, they're going to go to the hospital. And it's been calculated that um, that at the peak of an of a pandemic and epidemic, we can we can actually saturate all hospital beds in this country. That's not good for the patients with COVID nineteen. It's terrible for patients with with a heart attack, with strokes, with broken legs, because there won't be room for them. And on top of that there'll be decimation of the healthcare workers. So you have a double whammy in the healthcare system, which we desperately want to avoid.
1: I have wondered if you could talk a little bit about another term that we've heard a lot about called herd immunity, something that has come up a lot in terms of how to uh, sort of epidemiologically deal with these pandemics. And since you've seen several of them, I'm wondering what's your opinion of herd immunity? And first of all, what is herd immunity?
2: Herd immunity is um, a term that is frequently um, you know, misunderstood. Okay? Um, uh, and it's the idea, if without, in the absence of vaccine, okay, it's the idea that you let an infection go through an entire herd okay, so that um, the herd is now immune from a second wave of the, of the virus. right? Because once you get the virus, and COVID-19 is no different, um, individuals who uh, survive the virus, and many do, okay because the mortality is, as I mentioned to you, between 1% and 4%, um, um, you're not likely to get it again because you have uh, immunity against it. Now, um, in order for us to uh, prevent, to prevent a second wave what happens is that with a herd immunity you may you may be susceptible but all the all the cows around you okay all the people around you are already immune and therefore you won't be able to spread it even though you may get it or a small portion of the population may get it because they're susceptible the rest will not and will not spread because they're immune In order to achieve herd immunity, about 70 to 80 percent of a population need to be um, rendered, um, um, uh, you know, resistant. Okay, it depends. uh, Depends. But here's the problem: seventy. If seventy, if you let 70 to 80 percent of the American population to actually have COVID-19, that means. That means, let's just say it's 300. Look on I mean, just round it off. 300 million Americans, let's say, are allowed to have COVID-19. You know, at even one percent, that means three million Americans will die. That means that uh, 30 million Americans will have to go to the hospital. That, to me, is not the price I want to pay. For, uh, for the natural herd immunity. What is very important is that vaccines give herd immunity. Vaccines, in effect, is like giving you an infection without you having all the side effects of that infection. That's how we as a um, humanity, as, as mankind, eliminated smallpox, was mass vaccination on a worldwide basis it, present, it gave herd immunity in such a way that even if it cropped up on an intermittent basis, it would not spread.
1: And given that um, we have uh, this uh, prospect of being able to overcome the virus by a sort of a, an engineered herd immunity through a vaccine, what do you think uh, is the most promising direction that research is going right now, either toward a vaccine or other treatments that might, Be effective in in slowing this this
2: surge? Um, Well, I'm going to start with antivirals, vaccines, and then um, let's call it new technologies for social isolation, okay? Because I think it is worthwhile to talk about that. Um, Antivirals are drugs that stop the growth of the virus in you, okay? They're very effective, uh, um, you know, when the right one is chosen. And they're also effective in slowing down the uh, both, you know, eliminating potentially the more uh, much of the mortality, but also can slow down the progression of an uh, an epidemic. Um, Several um, antivirals are already being produced, some of which um, have been shown anecdotally. And the clinical trials are advancing very quickly to have effect. We have, sh- it's been shown that in culture, in cell culture, some of these drugs actually do slow down if not stop the, um, the replication of the virus. Now moving in into both animal models and in human clinical trials, there's great hope that um, it's going to emerge. And in fact, several have been um, more or less approved by the FDA to move forward in, in these trials. um, I would say that this is more likely to come on board before a vaccine. Mm -hmm. For the reasons I mentioned to you, you need tens of millions of units and you worry about actually vaccines that can make things worse. Now, the social isolation, I think, is um, uh, there are also new technologies in terms of the social isolation. Um, For example, um, the uh, idea that what China did or what, uh, uh, what Korea did, and it's already being contemplated in New York at this point, is building, uh, is moving um, uh, individuals who are not seriously ill, have minor symptoms, but are proven to be COVID-19 positive into intermediate care facilities that are not hospitals. That actually originally was done because you wanted to not flood the hospitals. But there's probably, this has not been proven, but there's probably some benefit in that individuals that are constantly being dosed with new waves of COVID-19 viruses like you might have in a hospital situation where the person next to you may be very seriously ill. may may actually get a, a more dose of the virus than you would in the outside. So more and more, that kind of... Uh, if the Chinese built an entire 1,000-bed um, they called hospital, but it really was a holding facility for quarantine in eight days. So that that kind of technology really made a difference.
1: So... Uh- Here we are in Hancock County, and you're the CEO of the largest employer in this county. What steps has JAX taken to uh, deal with this pandemic and and to uh, limit the uh, possibility of infection among our own uh, employees?
2: Well, first thing is uh, communications to really be upfront and clear about both the risks and, um, and the mitigating or the the factors that would reduce the risk. I and mean, We were very open about this. We have a website. We've had uh, group meetings. Um, we've had many uh, forums to do that. A very important part of what we're doing is um, we uh, we identified um, individuals whose jobs allow us to uh, deploy them at home, and um, we. Uh, we really didn't make it a an option. We asked those people do, to go home. Now, a very important part of this is I, I need to say that the workplace inherently is not a dangerous place. The only dangerous place is when you aggregate too many people together. By thinning out the workplace, and we have essential workers here. Many of our workers are doing things that are we will talk about, I hope, um, that will help solve the COVID-19 um, uh, problem. Um, we want to make this, the, the essential workplace safer for those individuals. So by thinning the, um, the workplace out, by actually putting people in shifts, by increasing the cleaning that we have, uh, by enhancing the, the social distance so that we never have more than f- now five people in a room uh, at any one time, and they have to be at least six feet apart. And um, on top of that, what, we're, what we have done is in the last three weeks, uh, f- and now coming on four weeks, have stood up a COVID-19 diagnostic uh, down in our Farmington, Connecticut uh, laboratory. Um, the primary reason is that there's not enough capacity in any of, uh, you know, across the country. And we wanted to make sure that um, the capacity was going to be available in the areas that that our workforce is at. We still don't have infinite capacity. And um, what we're hoping to do is actually develop, work very closely with the states of California, Maine, and Connecticut to help, at least in our own way, uh, to reduce the, the uh, demand and increase the capacity for COVID-19 sequencing.
1: Um, and are there other things that are going on at JAX that um, are sort of perhaps more long-range, uh, other ways to um, harness our capacity to do some cutting-edge re- ed- ed- research here at the JAX? that could actually be used in the COVID-19 war.
2: Absolutely. And um, uh, this is where you know, perhaps better than I, the um, the utility and capabilities of these. Um, I'll start out and I'm going to ask you the question. Um, uh, there is a, like I told you already that the COVID-19 uh, virus will not infect mice, which is the major research uh, research animal, but it will infect humans. So um, you, you really need an animal model to really be able to test conclusively whether an antiviral will work or not. It's, almost, it's absolutely essential. And so um, in 2007, um, an investigator in the University of Iowa actually constructed a mouse with a human receptor for the COVID-19 called the ACE2, right? Uh, So in the mouse, instead of having only the mouse ACE2, it actually has the human. Well, this mouse is uh, amenable to be infected by the um, SARS, MERS, and also the uh, COVID-19. Well, 2007 was a long time ago, and so JAX being who we are, we're um, we're able to resurrect the line and actually is in a massive expansion phase to prepare to give to the rest of the the nation and the world a model that uh, we can actually test the effectiveness of uh, antivirals. Now I'm gonna turn to you because you know much more how these, uh, this reagent, this resource can actually be used, um, you know, in a large scale.
1: Well, certainly the mouse that we have now that we're um, uh, sending around the world is um, really needed and is in high demand. It has a few uh, shortcomings, however, and one of them is that uh, when you make lots and lots of something in a mouse, it doesn't always mean that you get more and more of the, of, the res- of the response you're expecting. So we know that this mouse is making all of the proteins that the uh, virus needs um, and is indeed making the right human protein, that ACE2 protein. But the problem is it's making so much of it that it doesn't really mimic what's going on in the human. And so we're in the process of tinkering with the mouse gene and turning every little bit of it that is different from the human into the human, so that eventually we will have what's called a humanized mouse. We can then use that mouse in conjunction with many other mice that we have developed here at the Jackson Laboratory in which we've humanized the immune system to be a human immune system. And what we're trying to do is getting closer and closer in the mouse to the kind of response that a human would experience if it got infected, if he got or she got infected, so that then we can try out these treatments on the mouse. Now, we, as the Jackson Laboratory, don't do highly infectious research for obvious reasons. We have two million little furry mice. We do not want them to get sick. But what we now have is some fantastic new expertise in our uh, Connecticut campus where uh, scientists are actually taking the most important spike part out of the COVID-19 virus and putting it into a harmless virus. Now that virus can actually get to a protein on the surface of the mouse cell or the human cell, and that protein can sort of uh, ferry that piece of spike into the cell And so we can study the whole way in which this infection occurs without the danger of Mm. a full infection for humans because this is a completely disabled uh, viral uh, construct that was made to be completely uninfected. Um, And what that allows us to do is to test a whole slew of different ways in which we can prevent that entry Mm. right in the cells um, in the dish in the lab. So there are many different ways that we're uh, really well, trying a, to it. It's a prevention
2: tool. It could it be is used definitely as a
1: prevention, a prevention tool, That's... and it could be used to uh, find ways to either vaccinate or to render uh, humans much less susceptible to this virus, which obviously is the big is the big um, goal at this point.
2: Well, I, I, th- this is why um, you know, as bad as this pandemic is, and it's it's a significant. Um, uh, pandemic that is sweeping the, the world, uh, I have a, we're going to get over it. And we're going to get over it um, primarily by, by working together to keep this social distancing policies going. But very importantly, the science will carry the day. We will have a, a vaccine and we will have antivirals. Um, and we don't like the fact that it's a new pathogen in our in our midst. But I'm confident we can work through it. Now, having said that, let me give you my final slide. But This actually is uh, an important slide relative to Governor Mills' uh, pronouncement today. Why did she say from April 2nd to April 30th for this um, emergency and shelter-in-place order? It's because of this projection, which is a mathematical projection from the Institute, uh, IHME, uh, near the University of Washington. Um, And it shows actually a projected increase in number of serious cases hitting Maine, not the United States, but specific for Maine. Uh, And it's estimated that the peak of this, if social distancing really can be imposed Will occur sometime in the second, uh, the 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 third week of April, um, uh, and it will decline after that if we can continue this process. So what she's trying to do, and very rationally, is to get ahead of that curve. Okay, is to to instead of saying let's do it at April twentieth, let's start doing this in April second and flatten that curve out. Um, and I, I just uh, appo- I, 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 applaud her for uh, having the courage to do this.
0: This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. You're listening to a talk called From SARS to COVID-19, My Life with Pandemic Response, featured Jackson Lab president and CEO, Dr. Edison Liu. The moderator is Nadia Rosenthal, PhD. It was recorded on March 31st.
1: I, I was wondering if we could take a few minutes to uh, uh, just hopefully get the audience to provide us with a few more questions. but in the meantime, I have a question for you, Ed what myths about this pandemic are available to for debunking? how can how can we get rid of some of the misconceptions that are floating around in the media and the social media and
2: yeah and- um, the uh- the biggest one is that um, it's a mild disease, that it's a hoax, that it is a, it's a super exaggerated. Um, the problem here is that there's a highly differential uh, effect. If you're under 50, you may have primarily um, mild flu symptoms all the way to some severe ones. People have died under 50, don't get me wrong. But if you're over 70, your chance of dying is potentially 1 in 10. So it's quite significant. And everything in between, before between 50 and, and 70. So uh, when somebody says, when I hear somebody say, oh, this is just, it's, it's just like a cold, that is totally wrong. And it should be uh, completely debunked. The second issue here is, it, it, You know, what's the big deal? People get a, a cold and get over it. Well, if it swamps the hospital system, we're, we're cooked. So we can't have that happen as well. So those are the two really major ones that um, uh, I believe should be debunked.
1: So I, I see a few questions. I'll just um, I'll, I'll give you a couple of them here. Uh, one question is, how has our virology and or genetic knowledge changed since SARS? what new knowledge can be used to develop a vaccine faster or more accurately?
2: Well, I can, I can directly answer that because I was in the middle of, uh, of the first one, and of course, we're in the middle of the second one. It's really quite remarkable. Our sequencing technology was, in retrospect, so primitive in those days, even though they were unbelievably advanced. It took us weeks to get the type of sequence data that they they did in one day. Um, And it was broadcasted within an extraordinarily short period of time. The development of the diagnostic was was phenomenally fast. The only problem is we did not step on the accelerator in expanding that capacity. The second uh, issue here is that um, most systems were prepared, you know, um, as bad as it was in China, listen, um, we have now exceeded China in number of cases, okay? And um, so, uh, so this is, they actually were able to compress it. Um, uh, Singapore and Taiwan literally continue to have commerce in the streets, but they did so by having very stringent uh, tracking system and isolation systems um, you know, for them. So the response is really fantastic. And on top of that, the antivirals um, were already in place. Many of the antivirals I'm talking about right now had been tested for either SARS, HIV, or Ebola, and they're just pulling them out to really repurpose for COVID.
1: Thank you. What um, do you think the scientific difference between SARS and COVID is exactly?
2: Well, I, I mentioned to you the behavior of the viruses in, in the human hosts. Um, SARS is less transmissible, but much more deadly, uh, affects a um, whole range of ages. COVID um, is much more transmissible, um, less um, uh, virulent, but 10 times more violent than, than influenza. Uh, but also the morbidity is actually quite different. Why it affects the elderly in the manner it is hugely different than the youngers. Nobody really knows right now.
1: So what's the difference between a, an epidemic and a pandemic?
2: That's a very good uh, question. And it's a matter of scale. Uh, both are Um, pathogen-induced. An epidemic usually is constrained to a region. And pandemic is everywhere. So for example, the influenza pandemic of 1918, 1919 affected the entire world, Okay, just as much as a COVID-19 is affecting the entire world.
1: And could you talk a little more about the guidance um, when they were dealing with SARS uh, and the general public wearing masks in Singapore when you were um, working with them?
2: Yeah, um, that's when we started to realize um, how the, uh, the certain, not all masks are alike. Uh, I don't want to go into the exact details, but um, there are the surgical masks that, you, that, that doctors wear are really to protect the patient from the doctor, OK? Um, because as I mentioned to you, all you have to do is speak, and you'll, you'll actually spray. But it doesn't protect the doctor or the nurse from the patient, because it's not a tight seal. For that, you need a special mass, and the ones that are most commonly used are called N95, OK? Um, now, the question is, do all masks um, uh, help in a pandemic? You hear varying um, accounts. Some people saying, Don't, if you're not ill, don't wear a mask. Primarily that is stated because we don't want to run on the masks and not have enough for our healthcare workers. Um, but it is true, if you have any symptoms whatsoever, if you want to protect people around you from your own aerosol spray, a mask is actually helpful.
1: So another question that comes up is that if this aerosol lasts for three hours in the air, should hospital rooms that have uh, patients being examined uh, be somehow closed off for three hours to protect the next uh, group of patients? Well, how how uh, do we I, handle it?
2: That, that's a very interesting question. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why the uh, advice of all your doctors is if you have um, flu-like symptoms, don't come into the office. Okay, we, And this is, this is a technology issue. Um, telemedicine is going to be a very different and very important adjunct to the control. The second thing is that there are indeed um, uh, decontamination approaches in hospitals at this uh, this point. The challenge, and that's the other reason why we're very concerned about overloading these hospitals, is that you can't decontaminate and have a, a constant flow of patients as well.
1: Um, There's another question about the spread of the virus in droplets or just simply
2: in the air itself. No, it's uh, always in droplets. And these droplets can be very small, as we would call the aerosols.
1: So, um, and what are your thoughts on wearing a clean face mask? Um, Are they, is it safe? Isn't it safe? A cloth mask. I'm sorry, the cloth mask. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, As I mentioned before, the... um, the, the mask other than the N95 protects others from you and not the other way around, okay? Right. Uh, not that well. Right. But one thing about the cloth mask, um, you know, it's very common in Asia. Everybody wears it. You know, m- my personal feeling, my personal feeling, then it'll, it's it, it, not everybody will agree, is that it doesn't hurt and it can't help, okay? But one of the key issues is you've got to wash that, You've got to wash those cloth masks yeah. if they're not right. disposable.
1: Right. So um, could you talk a little bit about the status of chloroquine as a medicine? We've heard a lot about that from the right.
2: past. Right. Um, um, chloroquine has been shown in vitro, that is in cell cultures, to um, fundamentally block the processing of the virus as it enters the, um, enters the cell. And so the, the theor- theoretical component of it is that it, it may reduce the spread of the virus, um, you know, once it kind of begins in a little bit way like Tamiflu does in the flu. Um, there are clinical trials that have showed some effect of this. Mm-hmm. I, um, I don't, I haven't followed the, um, the, the extent of those studies, but I've just heard, I believe the FDA had a- approved it for some indications, and I don't, I, I, I think that uh, people who are more directly involved in patient care should answer that question. Okay.
1: Um, so what modifications were made to the SARS-neutralizing antibodies to evolve them into neutralizing corona? Do you think that this is a promising therapeutic, as, or are you concerned that the possibility of an antibody response increasing mortality, uh, which happened in dengue, actually?
2: Yeah, I mean, the... the uh, the person asking the question, Lily, I believe uh, is quite astute about this. And Sounds and like dengue a is a situation where we don't want in the corona, COVID-19 uh, uh, vaccine. Um, if, if one is uh, vaccinated to one strain of dengue and get the other, there's, I believe, four or five strains of dengue, uh, you can actually get hemorrhagic fever, which is the worst uh, manifestation of dengue. That's a little complicated here, but um, I'm not sure the issue of, of, neutral, of, of, of getting SARS-neutralizing antibody to evolve them, but we know that it's already being tested of taking individuals who've been, uh, been through um, COVID-19, generate neutralizing antibodies as a natural response and um, uh, having them volunteer their sera to extract the antibodies and the antibodies being used as as therapy for people with severe uh, COVID-19. There are several groups now working on that.
1: There's another question about, a specific question, about antigen development, in this case, egg-based vaccine antigen development for COVID-19. A question about whether that's a workable way forward for vaccine development. Well,
2: I'm sure that um, uh, the vaccine... Um, creators are trying to do whatever they can. Now, the challenge is it's not, I don't know if the COVID will, will actually replicate in, in eggs. So that's actually a key point that I don't understand. Um, the um, Moderna vaccine is actually an RNA vaccine. It's not even a protein. Mm. We can get into the details of that, but there, there are many groups working on that vaccine right now.
1: So this is a question for the Jackson Laboratory. How has COVID-19 affected Jack's presence and or activities in China, specifically the partnerships um, with Wenzhou Medical University? Wenzhou, sorry.
2: Well, uh, the partnership with Wenzhou is, uh, is actually quite, um, quite narrow and it's around a specific um, eye, uh, eye pathology and interaction. So um, we're really not working... Um, that intensely with Wenzhou. I just received a letter, a very nice letter, from the president of Wenzhou University wishing us well. Um, so there's a lot of goodwill. Um, in the context of uh, Xi'an, where um, we have Charles, uh, Charles Lee has, has a very interesting genetics laboratory there. They are, you know, fundamentally in lockdown right now. Um, not so much, I mean, the lockdown per se but uh, um, there's been no traffic between the two uh, institutions and uh, uh, several of our individuals there have, um, uh, have actually volunteered to go into Wuhan to help because they're physicians uh, to help with the, with the crisis. I can tell you that during, they're doing fine um, and the, um, the crisis is more or less over in Wuhan at this point.
1: So um, this is a a, a sort of a question about evolution. How does a virus like this originate? I mean, I actually wonder why is it that this virus is so good at infecting people, and yet it hasn't infected anyone until now?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, first of all, uh, there's this fantastic article by uh, Ian Lipkin, and that really goes through all this, what we know now. Of both the sequence and the structure and and so forth. Um, um, It is a beta coronavirus that clearly is related to the bat coronavirus. Um, By looking at the sequence, he basically, he and his colleagues basically asserts that the spike protein evolved uniquely to fit the human ACE2 protein well, and that is the transmissibility. Okay, Mm. There is this lore, there is this rumor going around that this was somehow engineered as some kind of, um, you know, in a laboratory and it got loose. He actually addressed that very rationally and said, if I were a a, uh, germ warfare type of person or even a, uh, a genetic engineer, I would have never guessed that this would be the sequence. Normally, what you do is you take a virulent strain, clip it out, and put it into this. Okay, there was nothing like that. So, the the argument, therefore, it was just a fluke of just. By the way, you know, the bat coronavirus mutates all the time in bats. So, um, the sequence we have of the bat coronavirus is from one bat, not the many variants that are there. Um, Bats and humans don't get together very often but for whatever reason in that place in Wuhan they kind of did and it's one in a million, one in a billion chance and it passed over. The most unusual aspect of it is how unlike the SARS where it required a series of passages to human hosts before it really evolved into something that could really be transmitted. This just jumped right in and, and uh, yes, raced through.
1: Well, there's another question about whether UV light can kill this virus with the idea, obviously, that on a soft or a hard surface, you could shine UV light on this and, and kill it as long as you didn't shine it on people.
2: Well, of course, but to be honest with you, 70% alcohol does, even does better does, and faster. And it's so faster. I would do that.
1: So what are your, what are your thoughts um, about testing for antibodies and allowing uh, individuals to be less restricted?
2: I've, it's a beautiful question, and that's what a lot of people are trying to do right now. Not only is, it, that, is an important, um, uh, that is an important point, but it also gives us an uh, opportunity to calculate the modelers, to calculate the issue of herd immunity, you know? Right.
1: That's right. Um, finally, Ed, where can people find out more about this pandemic and about the details as they arise?
2: I, maybe my last slide. I put in uh, just three, um, three sites, and um, two of them are at JAX. Um, there are many sites, let me just assure you, um, that, that are out there. The CDC site, the Center for Disease Control, and the WHO are probably the go-to sites that are there. Our two sites here, including one that is called the CEO's Corner, kind of collates a few of my talks, um, some writings that Jill Goldwaith and and I have done for the MDI Islander, which we've recirculated here. Um, And the, the, uh, the, the site, the IHME site, for the, for the cognoscenti, for the people who are really interested in delving into mathematical predictions. That was, um, and it's a running prediction that is given all the data that's coming out, they will actually give a prediction for how many um, cases would require hospitalization uh, on a state-by-state basis. Um, I, listen, I, I think in the context of for me, you know, um, I've been through a bunch of storms, and so have you. Okay, and I've been so impressed with the resilience of Mainers. Um, they say, "Well, it's it's a category, you know, 18." And you know <laughs> this. I'm just joking, but a high category storm, and we'll we'll wait it out, and we just have to be safe while it's happening. Let's view this in many ways, like a storm in Maine. Um, Let's, we know it's going to be over, okay? Um, But let's stay safe during this period of time.
0: You've been listening to
2: Maine Currents,
0: independent local news, views, and culture. The presentation, From SARS to COVID-19, My Life with Pandemic Response, featuring Jackson Lab President and CEO, Dr. Edison Liu, was recorded on March 31st in collaboration with the Ellsworth Public Library. We'll post a link to the video, along with the archives of today's program, at weru.org. This is Amy Brown. Thanks for listening. Stay well, and we'll see you all soon.